This episode of Access Utah was originally broadcast in May of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The domestic cat, your cat, has from evolutionary origins in Africa been transformed in comparatively little time into one of the most successful and diverse species on the planet. In his new book, The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa, Jonathan Lassus, writing uh, both as a scientist and a cat lover, explores how researchers today are unraveling the secrets of the cat past and present using all the tools of modern technology, GPS tracking, genomics, and forensic archaeology among them. In addition to solving the mysteries of your cat's past, it gives us a cat's eye view of today's habitats, including meeting wild cousins around the world whose habits your sweet house cat sometimes eerily parallels. Jonathan Lossus is an evolutionary biologist at Washington University, founding director of the Living Earth Collaborative. He's previously a professor of biology at Harvard and curator at the University's Museum of Comparative Zoology. He's won awards from National Academy of Sciences, Science for the uh, Society for the Study of Evolution, and American Society of Naturalists. Jonathan Lossus, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. So this is a, a fascinating book. I want to start with uh, your personal connection. Uh, when did you become a cat lover? Well, I became a cat lover very young. When I was five years old, uh, my mother and I went to the local Animal Protection Society to adopt a, a, a shelter cat for my father's birthday. My father was gaga about cats, and I, too, have been gaga ever since. Uh, you, I think you have cats right now. I do. I have four cats. Yeah, four cats. All right. <laughs> never, never wanted to own a dog. Never a dog guy. No, never a dog guy. We did have a Dalmatian growing up, but um, she and I didn't really get along all that well. Yeah. Uh, you said at one point you got a little kitten who was very affectionate, and that that made you a little more sympathetic to what dog lovers see in their dogs. Well, one of the cats we have now is a it's a it's a pedigreed cat, a member of the European Burmese breed and they have been bred to be very friendly affectionate playful cats and um they basically are dogs in cats clothing hmm. they come up and greet you when you when you walk in the door you look at you look at them and they start purring uh, they just love to be around you and so it's made me better understand what dog what dog people see in their in their pets hmm. i want to get to the science but i guess one more question on this what, what um what I think it's obvious, dog lovers, you get that affection, you get that uh, constant attention from your pet. Um, you know, cats might wander off and not interact with you for long periods of time. Well, what's the attraction to being a cat lover? Well, I think many people think that uh, being a cat lover, number one, they're such uh, exotic wild creatures that they, you, you seem like you're living with an animal that's one step out of the wild. Uh, but in addition, when your cat is friendly to you, at least some cats, you feel like you've earned it, that, that you really have achieved something in getting the cat to be friendly to you. Now, that's not always the case. As I said, our kitten Nelson is very friendly to everyone. But many people, it's like, yes, this cat really likes me, and that's saying something. See, so right, when you set out to become an evolutionary biologist, it never occurred to you to study cats. Uh, you, you started studying lizards. Um, so why, uh, I guess... Why not study cats? What, what's the attraction for lizards if you're an evolutionary biologist? 
Well, there's a number of attractions for lizards, and I must say I envy you all living in such a great lizard-full state as Utah. Um, but they are very common. There are many different species of them. There are 10,000 species of lizards in the world today, so they're very successful evolutionarily. And that they've been around since the time of the, di the dinosaurs, so they're great survivors. Moreover, many types of lizards, you can go out in nature and study them. You can find them and watch them and so on. And so they're a great group to understand how biological diversity evolves and how it is, how it manages to exist in today's world. Um, and so that's the appeal of, of studying lizards. They're a great model for understanding biological diversity. Um, with cats, you know, one of the things I wanted to do early on as a, a scientist was study animals in their natural habitat, to go out and find them and watch them and observe what they're doing and understand how they live their lives. Now, anyone who has tried to follow a cat uh, outside understands that that's basically impossible. As soon as the cat figures out that you're tailing it, it quickly hightails it into the bushes or some other place and, get, and gets rid of you. And so to, to study animal in the wild, animals in the wild, cats are they're just too difficult. And so that didn't seem like a good option for me uh, starting my career. Moreover, I was under the impression that there really wasn't much interesting research being done on domestic cats, you know, the, our pets and the feral variety, as opposed to lions and tigers. I just didn't think people were studying them because they were too familiar. And so it didn't seem like there was interesting science going on. And so I, I focused on lizards and ran with it for, uh, for my entire career. Then uh, that that changed you, you uh, obviously changed your mind because you you came up with an ingenious idea for a class at Harvard, a uh, class on cats. I guess by which you would cleverly draw them in with cute cats and then teach them evolutionary biology. Exactly, and that that what led me to do that was about ten years ago. I discovered I was wrong about the state of cat science and that in fact there was a lot of interesting research going on that scientists were studying domestic cats in the same way that I study lizards and that my colleagues study elephants and rhinos and lions and so on using all the state-of-the-art techniques uh, genome sequencing radio tracking isotope analysis and so on and so in fact there was a lot of very interesting research on domestic cats and so I had this idea that I would teach a class for for freshmen called the science of cats. And the idea is that I would lure the students in on cats, students who love cats, who are interested in them. And then I would teach them how modern science works, how we study nature using cats as the vehicle. And the, the class, I have to say, worked fantastically. It was great fun. The students really were interested. We did all kinds of fun things. And we learned a lot about how scientists study ecology, behavior, and evolution. Yeah, I would have loved to have been uh, in that class. Um, so you talk about diversity of the modern cat uh, breeds and this extraordinary fact that, uh, diversity of cats has occurred over decades rather than millennia. Men, most of the breeds of cats that have been developed are very recent since, oh, roughly 1900, even most of them since 1950. And so there are a great variety of different breeds and they're all the result almost all of them are the results of just a few decades of selective breeding by breeders now many of these breeds are just different in what i call the paint job their exterior color their fur how, whether it's long or short whether it's wavy or characteristics such as that 
but some breeds have been uh, have been developed that are quite different from any cat that has ever evolved. Yeah, you, uh, you give an example. Um, you say the uh, 1938 National Geographic featured an article on cats, photographs of Persian and Siamese. They didn't look all that different. Now, just what is that? 85 years later, they are very different. Yes, absolutely. If you look at that, it's a great article in the 1938 November issue of National Geographic. You look at the Persian cats and the Siamese cats, and they just look like look like regular old cats for the most part. They're a little bit different. Uh, they're beautiful cats, but they're normal looking. Today, the award-winning Persian cat is kind of extraordinary. It has it basically has no nose. It's got two little nostrils between its eyes. Um, this is similar to some dog breeds that have been developed, very short-muzzled, short-faced uh, dog breeds and cat breeds. Why people have done that is somewhat hard to understand. Um, it, it's, they, I think many people think they look cute. They have lar large round eyes and they kind of look like a baby, a sweet little baby in many respects. Um, it's actually not healthy for the Persian cats or the similar dogs. But the point is that, that these there is no wild species of feline, lions, ocelots, tigers, whatever, that looks anything like that. The breeders have transformed in a rel relatively short time the Persian cat from a normal cat, normal looking cat, into something that is quite different from anything else around. The Siamese has gone in the opposite direction. Uh, the breeders have selected for a very long, angular face. It's, it's, it's as if they grabbed the nose and pulled it forward. And again, it's like a... Uh, it's like un unlike any wild species of feline, and they've accomplished that again in just a few decades. You're right. The cat scientists have a severe case of dog envy. Uh, why is that? And what can we learn of the, about the two fields? Well, the um, there's a lot of research on dogs, and it gets a lot of publicity, and of of all sorts of different research on on their. Uh, their cognitive abilities, that is their ability to think and, and even reason to some extent. Uh, there's a big project that sequencing the genome of different dogs to try to find the genes responsible for the characteristics of many different breeds, not only their physical characteristics, but their behavior characteristics and so on. This work has gotten a lot of attention in the popular media. Uh, the reason I say that cat scientists have, uh, have dog envy is that Cat science is pretty comparable in many respects, but it has not gotten the attention that dog science has, that uh, in some ways it even surpasses the research on dogs. Uh, but it, for example, the cat genome work is also quite extensive, uh, looking for the traits that define the different breeds and their physical and behavioral characteristics. Also a lot of work trying to understand the diseases, the genetic diseases that cats have uh, to try to find veterinary cures for them, ways to, uh, to deal with these diseases. It turns out as well that the, the genome of cats, their DNA, is in many respects very similar to that of humans. And so there's a lot of crosstalk, if you will. What we learn about feline genomics and the genetics of diseases actually has applications in some cases for human diseases and vice versa. I love the footnotes in your book. These are not dry footnotes. Uh, the, the, the footnote of this page is, the English language is sorely lacking a word for the study of cats, which would be uh, somewhat surprising to me. It seems like it's fairly easily accessed a, a word for the study of anything. But you say that uh, there, there's 
a debate or trouble coming up with a overall word? Well, there, there really isn't a word out there. Sometimes you see the term theolinology. Uh, it's not widely used, but there's, the problem with theolinology is it mixes uh, Latin and Greek roots. And so it, it's not a proper, properly devised term. Uh, there, are, there is a word, ilurophilia, which means the love of cats, and ilurophobia, the fear of cats. So, and that's based on, the, uh, the comes from the Greek. And so in that sense, the study of cats should be ilurology. Um, so the cat's meow. What uh, what were the what were the big questions you set out to to want to answer in this book? Well, the the questions that I wanted to address were uh, basically where the cat came from. How how did we get to today's modern cat? Uh, how do we explain the modern modern day cats? How they exist? Why they do what they do? And what the future of cats holds? How they are going to change through time? And so uh, you know, And then how do we know these things? How how, do, how has science informed us about the answers to those questions? And so that was the general approach of the book. And um, along the way, I, I, I found lots of interesting aspects, many of which I did not know about the, the past, present, and future of cats. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, I want to go back to the very beginning of the book. Um, you, <laughs> this is a great way to, be, to begin the book. Uh, you uh, talk about a headline which got the science wrong, but it's uh, boy, it's a it's a grabbing headline. Um, what if your cat was, uh, uh, you know, the uh, larger? What if your cat was large enough, uh, that, or as large as cats in the wild? Would your domestic cat eat you? Yes, that was a funny headline that appeared actually in quite a number of different newspapers and and online sources and so on. Um, the research paper said nothing of the sort, it, um, but people ran with an interpretation of it. Uh, the basic idea was suppose somehow uh, we produced a domestic cat that was 50 or 75 pounds, uh, would it be dangerous? And first, I must say that it interests me that, that no cat, no domestic cats have been bred to be that large. If you look at the great variety of sizes of dogs, uh, cat breeds are much more constrained in, in their size. Perhaps breeders have uh, have exercised some uncommon good sense in not breeding that them that large, or, or maybe for some reason it's not possible, or maybe it will happen in the future. But in any case, uh, the research what the research did show is that there is there there are, are personalities of cats, if you will. That in recent years, scientists have been studying the idea of behavioral variation in all types of animals. And the idea is this, humans have what we call personalities. Individuals have different traits, different temperaments. And the question is, do animals also have different temperaments, one, one individual from the next? And the answer is absolutely so. Just like humans, some cats are, I'm gonna anthropomorphize here, use human terms, but some cats are bold, some are cautious, some are scaredy cats, some are very, uh, not uh, creative, willing to, to investigate new things, and so on. So there are many different aspects of cat uh, personality. And um, and this is probably no surprise to anyone, but it, it's been documented that cats do have different temperaments. What this study also showed is that the similar variation in temperaments among domestic cats applies to other feline species as well, that lions 
also have a similar range of personalities that are essentially the same personality cats as domestic cats. And that's true of other types of felines as well. And so it was from that that, they, that the newspapers said, well, cats are behaviorally, behaviorally, behaviorally like lions, and lions might try to eat us, so a big house cat would as well. And that was just um, going well. The paper said nothing of the sort. But as a tangent, I do want to point out one thing. Uh, people often say that if you live with cats and you died in your house and um, no one found your body, that your cats would eat your body. It turns out that there is some research on this and that dogs do that much more often than cats. But it does happen, I guess, right? But your, your dog's more likely to eat you after you're dead than your cat. That's what I, it does happen. I don't think it's all that common. Uh, but the records show it's more common with dogs than cats. I want to go to break here soon, but uh, maybe just one more question before we go to, to break. You say uh, in that first chapter that uh, domestic cats are commonly referred to as barely domesticated. Uh, what, what, what are you talking about there? Well, uh, the, the domestic cat descended from a species that lives in North Africa and the Middle East called the African wildcat. And I like to say that if you saw an African wildcat walking through your backyard, uh, you would not say, what is an African wildcat doing in Provo? Rather, you would say, what a cool looking cat. I've never seen one quite like it. And so the point is that African wildcats are very similar to domestic cats, that the standard domestic cat is not very different in appearance, in behavior. It turns out their genomes are very similar to, uh, to that to domestic cats. And so the domestic cat in general has changed very little. And that's why they so easily revert to being wild that feral cats uh, very quickly return to their ancestral ways. So standard cats, and I'm not including cats of, of breeds, standard cats are very slight, only very slightly different from their ancestors. Well, let's do uh, take a break. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jonathan Lassus. Uh, he is an evolutionary biologist, and he's author of a fascinating new book. It's called The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. And we'll have more following this brief break. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lassus. Uh, he's author, uh, most recently, of The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your uh, Sofa. Jonathan Lassus, I want to pick up this idea of domestication. Um, where and when were cats first domesticated? Do we, do we know? We have a pretty good idea. It occurred somewhere in, uh, in northern Africa or, or the Middle East, somewhere between Egypt to around the uh, Mediterranean, perhaps in Turkey. Uh, this is an area called the Fertile Crescent, and it's called that because it's the place where human civilization first uh, originated, where people settled down. They, before that, they were hunter-gatherers, but they settled down into villages and started raising crops. And so that set the stage for, uh, for the cat to become domesticated, the North African wildcat, which lived there naturally. We do know that by about at least 3,500 years ago, cats in Egypt were clearly domesticated. We know that from paintings on tomb walls and carvings that show a cat living in, a, in households, being pets with collars on, eating from dishes underneath the chair at the dining room table, going on outings in boats and so on. So it, by 3,500 years ago in Egypt, 
They were domesticated. Maybe domestication happened in Egypt. However, the first archaeological evidence of cats associating with people is a burial on the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean near Turkey from 10,000 years ago. So uh, cats were associating with people that long ago, but we don't know between then and 3,500 years ago when actually domestication occurred or where in the region it occurred. Um, uh, you, you talk about the difference between domesticated and tame. What, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Sure. A tame animal, you can raise the young of many species of animals. And if you treat them kindly, they often will grow up to be okay animals to live with. Uh, you can, it turns out that mountain lions, if raised as kittens, will be reasonably okay household animals. I am certainly not in any way encouraging that, by the way. It's a terrible idea and shouldn't be done. But tame animals are no different from their wild counterparts. It's just how they've been raised has led them to be okay to live with, with people. Uh, domesticated animals are, have actually changed genetically. They have evolved, and those genetic differences cause them to be different from their wild ancestors. So this is the difference. You sometimes hear the term nature versus nurture. Nature refers to genetic differences. Domestic animals have evolved as part of the domesticated process, whereas tame animals, this is the nurture, the, how the environments they experienced, how they were treated growing up affects their behavior. It's interesting to juxtapose cats and dogs in this case, right, to the domestication um, and also breeding. Yes. Well, there are a couple of features here. Dogs are clearly much more domesticated than cats. I mean, you're not going to mistake a dog for a wolf. Uh, moreover, when we look at their, their DNA, the DNA of dogs is much more different from that of wolves than the DNA of cats versus the African wildcat. Now, one reason may be just the time involved, that dogs were domesticated at least 15,000 years ago and possibly 30 or 40,000 years ago. So there's been a lot more time for them to, to evolve differences as part of the domestication process. In addition, however, dogs are easier to, uh, to shape, to get to, it's easier for people to get dogs to do what you want them to do than it is for cats. And so people have bred dogs to do certain tasks, and that has led them to become more domesticated, more different from their wolf ancestor. They're, for example, dogs like uh, dachshunds and, cor and corgis originally were bred to go down into burrows to, uh, to chase after rabbits. And that's why they have, they have that, the short legs and the elongated body. It's going to be very difficult for you to train a cat to, to go chase rabbits in a burrow. And so this is also made one of the reasons that dogs are more different from wolves. By the way, uh, you bring up training. I mean, it, it's you know pretty famous. You can train dogs. I think there's a perception out there you can't train cats. I think that's not true. I'm glad you asked that. That was going through my mind as I was answering the last question. Yes, cats are very trainable. They are just as trainable as dogs are. Uh, cats are very food oriented. And so you can train them to do all kinds of things. You can get, train them to do some things you can't train dogs. For example, you can train a cat to use a toilet. And um, so you don't need kitty litter. So cats are uh, very trainable. And if you don't believe that, look up the, uh, the Savitsky cats online. These, uh, these entertainers have trained cats to do marvelous tricks. 
Yeah, I was uh, reading an interview you gave, and uh, there was a link to the Savitsi Cats. I went and watched that this morning. That's They're, they're amazing. They're yeah, true, spe- true, truly amazing. Savitsky Cats, yeah, look, look it up. Um, so tell me about uh, cats and Egypt. I think we all of us have some... Uh, inkling that uh, uh, I mean you, you look at those uh, drawings on the wall and there's a lot of cats there so yes um, cats had uh, perhaps so they became treasured household pets as I said about 3,500 years ago then maybe 3,000 years ago uh, so the, the Egyptians had all kinds of gods through their through their many millennia and these gods often took the form of an animal in some way or had a totem animal. And about 3,000 years ago, the top god was named Bastet. And she was, uh, she was pictured as a domestic cat in the body of a woman. That is a woman's body with a domestic cat head. And she became the, the, biggest, uh, the, the biggest god there was at that time. And so cats became revered as the... Uh, em, em, the the emblem of of Bastet, and so they were worshipped and and became very important figures. And so that that was their that was their heyday in, in ancient Egypt. And you see all the carvings of uh, or the sculptures of cats and so on. Now, ironically, there's a dark side to this story, and um, this is you know uh, trigger warning if you don't want to hear something unpleasant. Uh, the Egyptians would have great festivals in the city where Bastet reigned as, as the god called Bubastis and, and elsewhere also. And during these festivals, amidst debauchery like Mardi Gras, they would go to the temple to ask for favors or to just you know, say nice things to the god. And they would bring votive offerings, just as people in, in some religions do today when they go to church. But these votive offerings would be mummified kittens. Um, and it turns out that the Egyptian priests were breeding cats and then killing them to make into little mummies that people would bring by the thousands to the temple as a votive offering. And so it turns out archaeologists over the last century have just found enormous numbers of these cat mummies that were, uh, that were brought to the, the temples and then stored underground in aptly named catacombs. Yeah, be careful what you wish for, right? You you might be a god, but uh, you exactly you get killed and mummified, perhaps as well. Um, there's a chapter I did. I love this uh, title: catancestry.com. What what can we tell from the DNA of of cats? Studying DNA. Well, so scientists uh, have studied. <clears throat> excuse me, have studied cats around the world. Now, remember, cats have only spread to all four corners of the world in the last few hundred years but they've looked at the genetic differences of cats in different places. And it turns out that there aren't a lot of those differences, but there are some. And based on that, you can get a good idea of where your, cat, where your cat's ancestry is, just like we do with humans, with uh, one of the things that 23andMe and so on do. And so if you have a cat and you, um, and you do a genetic test on it, you can say, oh, this cat, most cats in North America come from Western Europe. And you can get a percentage breakdown, just like with the human test, 90% of its genetics are Northern Europe and 10% Central Europe and so on and so forth. Um, and so so that that is what is done with these tests. I, I do want to point out that there is a 
a very strong group of scientists studying the genetics of cats to try to find the, the basis for diseases in cats and their traits. And, um, and this, in, this now industry of commercial companies that are developing this test, that is an outgrowth of this genomic work. And so uh, this is an example of how scientific work ha has led to commercial applications. Uh, so tell me a little bit more yet. Uh, you, we had the early history of cats and uh, when we think they were first domesticated. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the journey of, uh, you know, they were in this crescent. Uh, about when and, and how did cats make that leap um, from that area to around the world? Yes. So uh, Egypt was clearly the jumping off point. Wherever they were domesticated, it was from Egypt that they headed out to the rest of the world. And uh, the Egyptians actually, as part of their reverence for cats, did not want to let cats out. And they tried to keep them at home. But of course, cats will do what they will do and they boarded ships. And it was probably the case that sailors wanted them on the ships to help control rodents. And so they spread out initially probably to Greece and elsewhere in Southern Europe, um, from Greece to Rome and then from Rome throughout the Roman Empire. And so that's, that's how they probably spread throughout much of Europe. However, having said that, there were some very cool uh, studies recently on the, <clears throat> the DNA of ancient cats. That is, cat remains found in archaeological deposits from all over Europe and elsewhere in, in, that, in, the, in the Western and the Eastern Hemisphere, including cat mummies and other, other sites including a German port that had been controlled by the Vikings in the 7th century AD. And there were cat skeletons from that archaeological site. So looking at the DNA from these ancient cats, uh, the researchers were able to conclude that the Vikings had helped spread the cats to northern Europe, that instead of the cats getting to, to northern Europe, to northern Germany, by uh, spreading from Rome, it may have been the case that the Vikings went down to the Mediterranean to probably to Greece or somewhere or probably to Egypt or maybe Greece, picked up some cats and then brought them to northern Europe. And in fact, it's suggested they may have taken them to Iceland, to the United Kingdom and elsewhere. So the Vikings, as well as the Romans, probably played a role in uh, getting the cats to northern Europe and, and areas around there. Uh, then only in the last few centuries, of course, did cats get to North America from Western Europe. Mean, so that's how cats got north and west. In addition, cats headed east to Asia, and they did that both in ships that traveled around uh, the, the, the Arabian Gulf and into India, and also probably on the Persian road heading east to India, Pakistan, and China. And they arrived in that part of the world maybe 2,000 years ago. So, um, so that's, and then of course, more recently, they've spread to Australia and the Americas and so on. Let's take another break. Uh, I want to come back and ask uh, maybe a, a series of uh, questions uh, like do lions and tigers meow? We'll, we'll hold that till after the break. Um, we're talking with uh, Jonathan Lassus. Uh, he's an evolutionary biologist and uh, author of the fascinating new book, The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. It's out and available now. More following this break. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking with evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lassus. Uh, the book is The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. 
fascinating book. Um, and uh, Jonathan Lassus is a scientist and a cat lover as well. Um, so Jonathan Lassus, do lions and tigers meow? Lions and tigers do not meow. They have different structures in their throat that allows them to roar, but they do not meow. Uh, do they purr? No, they for the same reason they don't purr. Uh, but there are some uh, behaviors which uh, you would you would recognize from your house cat, I believe. Yes, um, and I, I want to answer your question about the meowing and purring a little bit more as well. But uh, in talking to zookeepers, they tell me that if you can understand the body language of your house cat, you know what it's trying to tell you, if you will, you can understand what's going on in the mind of a lion and tiger. That cats generally in very coarse terms, their behaviors are all the same. And so, uh, and that's a, a general phenomenon that for the most part, a cat's a cat. There are some differences, the big ones don't meow and roar and so on. But for the most part, cats today and always have been very cat-like. That even the first cat 30 million years ago would have been recon rec easily recognizable as a cat. So cats are very similar in their behavior and their overall anatomy. Um, but going back to the meow, um, one of the things that struck me the most as I looked into this book is the fact uh, I had always assumed that cats, uh, everyone knows that cats meow to people, everyone who's lived with a cat. You know, your cat is trying to tell you something by meowing. I had always assumed that cats meow to each other to communicate and that when they were meowing to us, it was just a sign that they were including us in their social circle. However, it turns out that's not the case, that research on colonies of cats living outside shows that cats rarely meow to each other. They have plenty of other sounds they use, howling, hissing, growling, and so on, but they don't meow to each other. Now, that suggests that maybe the meow is something that evolved during domestication, that maybe the house cat is the only cat, the only feline that meows. But that's not true. Uh, un unlike the lion and the tiger, there are many small species of cats, bobcats, ocelots, and many others. They all meow. So the meow is a general trait of small cats, but the domestic cat has uh, used the meow in new ways to communicate with us. And that is a trait that must have evolved during domestication. And further, it turns out that uh, the house cat has changed its meow from that of the African wildcat. That a scientist did a study on this and he recorded meowing of African wildcats in a zoo and house cats. And house cats have a meow that is shorter and higher frequency. And when you play uh, recordings to people of an African wildcat meow and a house cat meow, people can clearly tell the difference and they find the house cat meow to be much more of a pleasing sound, you know, nicer on the ears. Uh, it is suggested that the higher pitched sound of the house cat is similar to the, the sound that that children make and that we are uh, sensitized to consider that sound appealing. And so the argument is that cats have altered their meow in a way that that will make it easier for them to communicate with us. What about uh, purring? Is that a similar evolution of, of purring to to, I guess, integrate with us? A excellent question. Um, as with meowing, small cats all purr. And in fact, it, you know, it's fun to go to YouTube and, and 
Google purring and meowing of other cat species, bobcat, serval, whatever, and you'll, you'll hear them. And they sound, well, the meows are a little different, but they're clearly meows. And the same with the purr. But the interesting thing about the purr of the domestic cat is that, again, as anyone who's lived with a, a cat probably knows, cats have multiple sounding purrs. And in general, there are, are two major types. One is the very pleasant, contented sound that the cat makes when it's sitting in your lap and you're purring, uh, you're petting the cat and so on. It's a very pleasing sound. But there's a second sound that is much more insistent. It's kind of like a chainsaw, broom, broom sound. And that purr the cat makes when it wants something. And uh, anyone who has opened a can of wet food in the kitchen and a cat is rubbing up against your legs <laughs> and making this purr, you know that sound. Mm -hmm. um, and that sound is, is so researchers uh, studied the differences and they got the cats to make this, this insistent sound called the solicitation purr by telling, by finding people who fed their cats first thing in the morning. And it turns out that is a really bad idea because you're training your cat to come wake you up because it's hungry. It knows that once you get up, uh, you will feed the cat. The cats are good at training us just as we train, uh, train them. Anyway, the researcher told the people in the study, when your alarm goes off in the morning, stay in bed. And the reason is, just as predicted, within moments, the cat would jump on the bed, position itself next to the person's head by their ears, and make this broom, broom solicitation purr. And so they recorded the purrs that way. And then they played back that purr and the regular, the normal purr to people, and people found the solicitation purr to be much less pleasant, that very insistent, demanding purr. Well, the interesting thing is that the scientists then looked at the, the digital traces of the, cur of the purr, the audio spectrogram it's called, and they could isolate the, what part of that purr made it so insistent sounding, how it, how it differed from the sound of the contentment purr. And what they found was that, what they argued was that this added component that made it so demanding had, had audio qualities similar to a baby crying. And they argued that humans are highly attuned to babies crying. We are, that is innate in us, a sound we pick up and respond to. And they argued that the cats had evolved to take advantage of our sensitivity to that sound, to put it in their purring uh, as a way of getting our attention, getting us to do what they wanted. I have to say, when I read that research paper, I was pretty skeptical. I could well imagine that there were differences in the sound. You could identify it on the audio spectrogram. But to say that they were imitating a baby's crying seemed a little too far. But then I listened to the audio files that the scientists made available online. And sure enough, when you play that uh, solicitation purr, you can hear a baby crying in it. Uh, I could anyway. And if you don't believe me, uh, go to the go to the internet, go to YouTube and, and, and uh, Google solicitation per cat or something like that and hear for yourself. And I played it to other people and many people say they hear a baby purring, others are a uh, baby crying, others aren't so sure. But anyway, the argument is that, the, that as with the meow, the cats have evolved their purring in a way to get what they want from us. Uh, tell me about kitty cam studies. I guess you know, they have studies where a cat wears a small video camera. What have we learned there? Well, it's fascinating. The idea here is, as, as we talked about early on in, in this interview, it's really hard to follow cats around and see what they're doing. And so what people have done is they've made tiny little cameras 
that you can now actually buy these commercially that you put on the collar of the cat and you turn it on when the cat goes outside and it records a cat's eye view of what cats are doing when they're out and about. And researchers have put these kitty cams both on house pets and on feral cats to see what they do. And um, on the house pets, what happens is, you know, they do all kinds of things. They, they wander around, they're, they're curious. They, they explore a lot, they check things out. And, uh, and they, you know, the, the real message from these studies on, on house pets is cats do a lot of dangerous things. And it really uh, uh, reinforces the idea that letting cats go outside is risky. They cross roads quite a lot, which of course risks getting run over and way too many cats do get run over. They go into dangerous places. They go into storm drains where they go in these pipes that if a sudden storm came along, they would be in big trouble. They go into crawl spaces under houses. They go into under roofs. Uh, they confront other cats and wild animals and they eat and drink whatever they come across. And so it, it shows that cats do wander around and explore and do things that probably aren't in their best interest. And so that that's kind of a take home message. There are also studies about how they, um, the wild animals that they eat, which certainly some uh, outdoor cats will, will do a lot of that and how they will, well, they, they will attack them and in many cases catch them. One of the surprising findings of these kitty cam studies is that many of, we all know that cats will bring uh, prey back home and why they do that is a good question. Uh, and so people have tried to, to estimate how many animals cats will kill by the number brought back home. What these studies show is that many of the prey that are captured by these cats are either consumed on the spot or just killed and left. And so the, the prey that they bring back to their, uh, their household companions is only a, a fraction of the total number that they kill. We have about uh, five minutes left in the conversation. I, I definitely want to have you talk about uh, what you might call um, cat management, domestic cat management. So uh, conservation biologists have a, uh, one view. Animal protection advocates have, a, have another view. I wonder, uh, you've, you've talked a little bit about this uh, in the book. Yes, this is a very difficult topic and it's a very complex one. Uh, there is no doubt that in some parts of the world, domestic cats are a huge conservation problem. And I'm talking about Australia, many oceanic islands where the native species have no experience with predators, much less one like a cat and are thus very vulnerable. And cats have been responsible for the extinction of many species in these places and they are a threat to many more today. Um, con Moreover, so in some places, there is no doubt the cats are a conservation problem. Now, in the United States, uh, there are, a, some, by some estimates, 30 million unowned cats that live outside. And many of these cats are fed by people, uh, some of them not, some of them are just living a feral lifestyle off the grid, if you will, away from people, but many of them are fed by people. And there is concern that these cats uh, may be causing uh, causing species in, in the United States to be in jeopardy. In addition, as I pointed out, pet cats that go outside will also kill prey. The data that we have right now indicate that, uh, that these cats do kill a lot of birds and rodents and other animals. And in some places, they are, can be a real problem. For example, in the Florida Keys, there are two uh, endangered species, a, a mouse and a rabbit that are 
are preyed upon by uh, domestic cats, and it's a real issue for those species. It's also true in Hawaii, where there are many seabirds that are preyed upon by cats. On the other hand, the data really aren't, aren't conclusive yet that cats are a problem everywhere. Uh, and so the, the question is, what do we do about these cats out, outside? Now, for pet cats, to the extent possible, it's good to keep your cats inside. It's better for the cats. It's better for the environment. Some cats are not so cooperative in that, and, um, and some people let their cats out because the cats demand it or because they think that's the cat way of life. Um, for the unowned outdoor cats, the real problem is everyone agrees we wish there were no unowned cats living outside. But the question is, how do we how do we reduce the number? And there's a lot of disagreement on ways to do that. And it's a very difficult problem. Uh, one of the issues is that cats breed very readily. And so uh, a female cat can have three litters in a year. And so uh, how, do you, how do you stop them from breeding and how do you get the populations to, to decrease? And there's, it's a very difficult problem with lots of different views about what needs to be done. We just have about a minute left. Uh, I wonder what uh, what's on the horizon. What uh, maybe select a unanswered question that you're very interested in regarding cats. Well, one of the one of the things that has been suggested is that we could breed cats that are happy to stay inside all the time, or that aren't interested in hunting and uh, in going out and killing prey. And seeing how we have been able to breed. Have breeders have developed cats with all kinds of different uh, physiques and behaviors and so on. I think that's very possible. And so one solution to the issue of cats uh, and their impact on the environment, as well as cats living in modern settings and in apartments and so on, would be to work to, to breed cats with behavioral tendencies that make them perfectly happy to sit inside an apartment and not hunt, and not hunt uh, you know, try to kill uh, other prey. My guess is that there are genes that would could be selected for that would that would favor those behaviors, and I think that it has been suggested. And I think there's reason to believe that that it may be a way of producing a cat that really fits in with modern with modern living. So I think that's an unanswered question. I, just as a side note, people are working on solving the cat allergy problem by they found the gene that produces the protein that cats produce that people are allergic. And so it's one clear example of how genetic studies can actually benefit uh, people and thus benefit cats as well. Well, it's fascinating. We'll, uh, we'll stay tuned, as, as we say. Uh, evolutionary biologist Jonathan Lassus has been with us. He's uh, with Washington University, founding director of the Living Earth Collaborative, author of the fascinating new book, The Cat's Meow, How Cats Evolved from the Savannah to Your Sofa. And that book is out and available now. Jonathan Lossus, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure being here, Tom. It's Many Cultures, One Sky, Sky Watcher Leo T. Uh, propellant leak will keep astrobiotics peregrine lander from touching down on the moon, as you know by now, but the mission is trying to get home to Earth, and it's going to go into the Earth's atmosphere and burn up, because if you don't have thruster burns, and the problem, one of the problems they have is a fuel leak. Now, the fuel leak is leaving them without enough fuel to adjust their thrusters, not sure if they have the guidance to actually fire those thrusters, but minor adjustments will keep them from getting too wide to the Earth by a long shot, even just a minor one, and uh, if you don't have the right angle, you'll burn up in the atmosphere which it looks like that's what the peregrine will do but um, 
you know, all space flight is a test flight. It's not a failure in my eyes. Every single one from Yuri Gregarin being the first man in space to Alan Shepard's first launch for the United States to every time landing on the moon. Space flight relies on the scientific method to learn and figure things out. After Gemini and the USSR were able to accomplish docking in the mid-60s, the next step of going to the moon happened after two Apollo Earth orbit missions. Apollo 8 was going to do another Earth orbit when NASA decided to shoot for the moon, and the astronauts were kind of excited to do it, I'm sure a little scared. And with great scientific testing, learning, and some huxt paw, they decided to go for it in 1968, bringing the first manned mission to the moon and Apollo 8's trip around the moon in our living room with images transmitted across the void and on the radio. This led to Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin's experience landing on the moon on Apollo 11 in 1969. And looking up the sky with our eyes, taking a little trip with those, how does the Sirius Procyon balance? Newly risen tilt for you. Procyon is right below the big Sirius star, and it's uh, actually uh, above it, and it's quite beautiful as well. Looks very good with Sirius on the horizon. Meanwhile, Triangular Man Aries teeter in the balance uh, somewhat near Jupiter. On the near coldest time of the year, Sirius does uh, rise around the end of twilight. Orion's three-star belt points down almost as Sirius's rising place. Watch there. Once Sirius is up, it twinkles slowly and deeply through thick layers of low atmosphere, then faster and more shallowly as it gains altitude. Its flashes of color also moderate and blend in with shimmering whiteness as it climbs to the shine in the thinner air. It also makes a, a pretty nice prism. And from here, let's take the little Skywatcher spaceship a little further out to observe the way out black hole merger that could help test general relativity yet again, Einstein. Scientists have discovered gravitational waves stemming from a black hole merger that suggests that the resultant black holes settled into a stable spherical shape. These waves also reveal the combo black holes may be much larger than previously thought. New studies show space-time vibrations from the merger created black hole rippling outward as the void resolved into a proper spherical shape seem to suggest what general relativity predicts that objects with mass warp the very fabric of space and time united as a single four-dimensional entity called space-time and that gravity as we perceive it arises from the curvature of earth itself from distant neutron stars to earth it's one sky many cultures on skywatcher leo t Vietnamese New Year and others related from the Orient celebrate the New Year based on the moon phase, and it lasts a few weeks. Tet Lunar New Year is one of the biggest traditional holidays in Vietnam. During the holiday in Vietnam, many cultural activities and traditions are held to welcome the New Year. The traditional New Year festival celebrated based on the lunar calendar, and in Vietnam, this is kind of complicated for me, lasts from the 23rd of the 12th lunar month, okay, all right, to the end of the 7th of the first lunar month. In Vietnam, or Vietnam, in Vietnamese mythology, the unicorn is a composite creature from the features of a horse, dragon, and buffalo. Like the dragon, the unicorn's appearance is believed to bring good fortune and peace. You can often catch sight of a unicorn carved on doorways and unicorn statues in front of many pagodas and temples. It is because the unicorn can guard the houses, temples, and worship sites and keep them from evil spirits. Legend has it that Vietnamese unicorn was a wild beast under the sea, coming on land to destroy crops. Maitreya Buddha transformed himself into the earth god and turned the unicorn into a helpful beast. This legend explains the origin of the lion dance, often performed at traditional Vietnamese festivals, including the Lunar New Year and Mid-Autumn Festival. Unlike the lion dance in other countries, the Vietnamese lion dance is called the unicorn dance, where Ang Dia, or the earth god, leads and dances with the unicorns. 
look around the Earth and get a little bit lost in space. Skywatcher Leo T.